Psalm 51. Last week, we looked at the first six verses. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. You will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls. On your altar. We've been looking at Psalm 51 and last week we looked at verses one through six. And remember, there was a series of things that I talked about with you. Confession, conviction, cleansing and and consecration. Now we look we, we looked at the confession of a broken man. And now in verses seven through twelve, we're going to focus on the cleansing of a broken heart. In verses one through six, we saw our need for brokenness, how apart from brokenness, we are a danger to ourselves, and we're a danger to others. Brokenness keeps us sensitive to God's promptings and reminds us of our need for holiness in our life. Brokenness, and please underline this and accent it. Brokenness makes us like Jesus. And remember, that's God's plan and purpose. It's to mold you and shape you and make you like Jesus. God uses the conviction of the Holy Spirit And even our own sin to break us. But not all brokenness comes as a result of personal sin. Sometimes God will use spiritual warfare to break us. Sometimes God will use difficult circumstances to break us. Sometimes God will use difficult people to break us. Like your husband. 
like your wife, like your children, like your parents. We, of course, are never the difficult person in someone else's life in need of brokenness. Not. Sometimes you are the person who makes the provision and sometimes you are the provision. We don't mind being broken. We just don't want God to use that person. And you may know who that person is. You might even have a person who has come to your mind right at this very moment. Oswald Chambers wrote, God can never make us whine if we object to the fingers he uses to crush us with. If God would only use his own fingers and make me broken bread and poured out wine in a special way. But when he uses someone whom we dislike or or some set of circumstances to which we said we would never submit and make those the crushers, we object. We say I'll go anywhere you want, Lord. Except there. That's exactly right. I'll go anywhere you want, Lord. Except in that direction. But remember the prayer that you prayed. God is free to use anyone or anything that he knows will be the most effective instrument in our breaking. And so what we're going to be looking at is the cleansing of a broken heart. David, think about it, desires cleansing from his sin. And who can blame him? Isn't that what you want? When your life and your heart has been an accumulation of guilt and shame. It was Walter Hilton who wrote, when you attack the roots of sin, fix your thought more on the God you desire than on the sin that you abhor. And that becomes one of the chief principles that you've got to come to grips with. Your preoccupation can't be with the sin, with the transgression, with the accumulation of the sin. It has to begin to focus on what you really, really want. And that's a right relationship with God and Christ. And we've already asked the question, is there cleansing for willful disobedience to God? Not just your garden variety kind of sin, the kind of sin that Psalm 51 talks about, the psalm that was invited. Remember, at the opening portion of the psalm to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet, went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. We're talking about an accumulation of sins that include adultery and murder. We're talking about deep sins. Is there cleansing? Is there forgiveness? Is there forgiveness for life-shattering sin? What about the kind of sin that, that, that seemingly hasn't just ruined your life, it's ruined everybody's life around you? David has confessed transgression. Remember, that's willful sin. Iniquity. Remember, that's a corruption of the heart. Sin. That's the corruption of the self. 
And so we're talking about every kind of sin, willful sin, the kind of internal sin that corrupts you and that corrupts you thoroughly and completely. Remember, the New Testament speaks of of a certain kind of a sin that can be forgiven and a certain kind of a sin that cannot be forgiven. In Matthew, chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to the religious leaders, therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men and whoever speaks a word against the son of man it will be forgiven him but whoever speaks against the holy spirit it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come that of course necessitates just a quick reminder and a a word of insight to you what is that sin what is the sin Against the Holy Spirit that cannot be forgiven. The sin against the Holy Spirit that cannot be forgiven is when the Holy Spirit shows up and convicts you of your sin and convicts you of your rebellion and your disobedience and then provides for you the satisfying solution to the problem of sin, which is Jesus Christ, the Lord. And you say, that's not for me. I want freedom from guilt and I want freedom from shame, but I don't want freedom from guilt and shame that includes having a right relationship with God in Christ. Is it possible for a person to reject Christ? Yes. And later accept them? Yes. So what is this sin that's being spoken of? It is a willful rejection of the continual wooing of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation and the declaration of the gospel. And you come to a full and final and complete rejection and you die in that rejection and that sin cannot be forgiven. So how do we pray? And what do we pray? How do we pray and what do we pray as we cry out to God and we ask God to cleanse our heart and forgive our sins? And we remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as has a contrite spirit. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It says in James chapter four, verse six. And so God sees a broken heart. God sees a contrite spirit. God sees brokenness and humility. And guess what? It pleases him. It pleases him. And the reason why it it pleases him is because brokenness appeals to the compassion and the power of God. And so David lists seven ways that sin subjects us to its awful consequences from verse seven through verse 12. David presents sins defilement in verse 7, sin's deafness in verse 8, sin's disgrace in verse 9, sin's damage in verse 10, sin's doom in verse 11, sin's depression at the beginning of verse 12, and then sin's defeat at the end of verse 12. It was Martin Luther, the famous reformer, who reminded his congregation, sin is not a monster to be mused on, but an impotence to be gotten rid of. And you can become so preoccupied with your sin that you never really repent and never experience true 
faith and and forgiveness. And so it begins in verse seven. Look what it says. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. In the New Living Translation, it says, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. In first Kings chapter four, verse 30, 33, it says also he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, birds, creeping things and fish. And then in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, it says, and you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, strike it on the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is on the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. The point. In verse 7, David is speaking of the pollution that sin causes inside of us. Sin clearly alienates, but it also contaminates. That's what sin is. It's a kind of moral pollution. It defiles us. Now think about that. With that pollution and with that defilement, David wants Cleansing. Now, again, we're back to square one, though. Is it even right to ask for forgiveness and cleansing from what seems unforgivable, from what seems unconscionable, which which seems so wicked and so horrible that you even wonder whether or not there is forgiveness? And if you've ever wondered that in your own heart, all of a sudden now I want you to detach just for a moment from your own sin and think of the wickedness that David has embraced and engaged in. Is there hope for him? Is there forgiveness for him? Does he even have the right to cry out and say, I want the contamination. I want the moral pollution to go away. You know, the very fact that he's even crying out for that should give you hope. That if he has the ability to ask for help, so can you. David felt contaminated. Here's the question. You don't have to raise your hand and you don't have to shout hallelujah. Have you ever felt contaminated, polluted from your sin? That that dark, wicked, distressing thing starts to envelop your soul. That's the point that he's talking about. Shakespeare talks about it when he records the murder of Macbeth. And remember, there is this constant reoccurring presence of guilt. What cleansing agent can brush the stain of the soul? What ritual, what religion, what resolve could meet the need? David is utterly corrupt. He's completely contaminated. He is in what looks like a seeming hopeless pollution, and he knows it. And so David longs, look what he says, to be purged with hyssop and hyssop was a common herb in Palestine. That's what I meant in first Corinthians 433. And he spoke of trees from the cedar trees of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. It was so common that it grew between the walls. Hyssop is a plant that was used as a sponge. It was also used as a sprinkler in various ceremonies. When a leper was cleansed from his or her leprosy, David is basically praying What is the sprinkler? What is the sponge? 
what is the paint that is going to take away my moral contamination? It was hyssop that was dipped in a bowl of blood that was spread over the lintels when the angel of death came to the children of Israel in Egypt and he forms a line of blood horizontally and a line of blood vertically. And the children of Israel would paint a bloody cross on their doorstep as an invitation that the angel of death would pass by. What kind of brush and what kind of blood would make the consequences of sin go away? That's what he's asking. David wants God to deal with his utter contamination. David can't stand the filth any longer. And he wants it gone. And there's an important principle for you. Because so long as you're willing to bear the shame and bear the contamination and bear the pollution and bear the wickedness and the darkness of the surface on your soul, so long as you're willing to say, I'm fine, I'm fine. You won't experience this kind of cleansing. Do you see what David wrote in verse 6? Brokenness brings us back to the reality of what it means to have a relationship with the Lord. Remember back at verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. You will make me to know wisdom. You need me to come clean on the inside. And in order for me to come clean on the inside... I have to be completely clean on the inside. And when we are broken, when we come to the end of our own personal hypocrisy, when we're sick and tired of living a double life and we realize that there must be truth and it doesn't just come from our lips, but it is willing to come from the inside of our heart, the experience of wholeness on the inside in order to experience wholeness on the outside. You've got to come to grips with the advantages that brokenness brings. What brokenness does, it gives you the courage to be made whole inside and out. Now think about this for just a moment. Brokenness makes the word of God come alive in your life in a fresh way. Brokenness gives your heart the ability to break to such a degree that the powerful presence of God's Holy Spirit can leak inside of your heart. Think about this. Remember what he said, behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom when you are broken. There's this sense of excitement. There's an appreciation for God's word. You'll long for it. You'll love it. You'll hunger for it in the hidden heart. In other words, with brokenness comes a receptivity. But if you go home and you shut your Bible. And you put it on the shelf. Or you decide you don't want to look at it because it makes you feel bad. Then there's still a little process that, that needs to happen. I believe that that's the depth of your soul. You probably heard people talk about it. 
the depth of your soul. I believe this is the place where psychologists long to look, but they never really do. And this is the reason why it's called the hidden part. I think there's a reason why it's called the hidden part. The reason why it's called the hidden part is because it is hidden. It's not available. This is more than just knowing and understanding the word of God. This is a desire to be changed at the deepest level in which you think and feel. And for the person who says, well, you know, you Christians, you know, give me two scriptures and call me in the morning. No, we're not talking about give you two scriptures and call you in the morning. We're talking about going through a process of cleansing that is going to result in a right relationship with God. And so this should cause you to ask yourself this question. Have you lost your love for the word of God? Does God's word seem dull, boring, uninteresting, repetitive, repetitious? Do you go to church out of a sense of delight or duty? Do you desire the word of God to reach down deep in your heart and in your soul? Could it be that God is breaking your heart so that you can once again allow the powerful living seed of life to penetrate the hard soil of your sinful circumstance and burrow down deep and then produce roots And then a stem and then fruit. Brokenness will often allow the word of God to come alive in your life. And if the word of God hasn't come alive in your life, then guess what? Then there's probably some more brokenness down the line for you. There's probably a little bit more before you can experience Cleansing from sin's pollution. But look, we go from the pollution to the soul's silence. Look at verse 8. In the New King James, it says, Make me hear hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Again, the New Living Translation is very interesting. It says, Oh, give me back my joy. Isn't that good? Oh, give me back my joy again. You've broken me. Now let me rejoice. Do you understand what David is saying? Poor David has become deaf to the sounds of joy. That's why he says, make me hear joy and gladness. He's become deaf to the sounds of joy. It's as if all of the things that were beautiful, all of the things that were glorious, all of the praise, it was gone. David has become deaf to the voice of God. He can't hear from God. And the reason why he can't hear from God is because his sin has separated him from God. And there was a time, think about this, there was a time when David could take out his acoustic harp, read guitar. And the halls would ring with the praises of God. Think about it. David takes out his harp and he begins to sing. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know. 
Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. But there's nothing there. It's all silence. As a matter of fact, now the songs taste like dirt in his mouth. When we experience brokenness and when we experience forgiveness and when we experience restoration, there's this fresh outpouring of joy and gladness. And David's sin has caused him to fail to experience joy and gladness. And joy and gladness has been something that has been distant from him for a very, very long time. And I've noticed something when I counsel people. Often there is a conspicuous lack of joy. And there's a conspicuous lack of peace. As a matter of fact, in in Romans chapter 15, verse four, I often find myself there saying for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And then in Romans 15, 13, it says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing That you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. People who are frightened. And people who are depressed. Their fear and their depression cause them to lose hope. And people who are suffering mental or emotional or physical distress. In the midst of that mental and physical distress, it feels like a powerful weight, crushing, squeezing, causing all of the hope to leak right out of you. But there's joy. And there's gladness. And there's peace. When you know that your sins are forgiven. And that you've been cleansed. And that you have a right relationship with God. And that's exactly what David wants. That's what he wants. He's saying that's what I need. I need to hear from you. I need joy and gladness. Now I want you to think just for a moment about David's treasures. Think about what David has. Does he have gold? Way more than he could spend in a lifetime. Does he have silver? Yes. Does he have a palace? Yes. Does he have horses? Yes. Does he have an army? Yes. Does he have wives? Way too many than he should. Does he have servants? Yes. Does he have a kingdom? Yes. But here's the deal. Can all of the treasure in the world fill the void where there is no place in his heart? But the presence of God, his sin is overwhelming. What price, what gold, what silver, what could he spend to exchange his guilt for joy? Where is it that he can go and purchase gladness? Can the sum and the substance of all of his resources purchase him into a right relationship and forgiveness with God? No, because all of the gold and all of the silver, all of the resources on the entire planet Earth can't be a satisfying solution to the problem of the offense against God. Because it's God who's been offended. And so in order for God's 
offense to go away. It's God himself who's going to have to come up with a solution. By the way, what would you rather have? A nice half and half, half sweet, half regular Chick-fil-A tea and a right relationship with God? Or a fufu jink from Starbucks along with a gigantic all-you-can-eat buffet in the absence of joy and peace? I would rather have Chick-fil-A tea and the Lord. Why do I even bring this up? Because sometimes we lose sight of what's really important. We actually lose sight of what's valuable and what is real and what is good and what is worth having and what is worth experiencing. And there's nothing. There is zero. There is nothing worth it. If it keeps you from having a right relationship and friendship with the Lord. And so he moves to the issue of shame in verse nine, the soul's shame. Again, in the in the New King James, it says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Again, the New Living Translation is pretty dramatic. (laughs) It says. Don't keep looking at my sins. I like that. Have you ever heard a a child say, stop staring? And you go, I've heard grown-ups say that. Stop staring. David writes, don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Do you know what he's experiencing? The hot Burning presence and conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's a constant reminder to him that something is horrible. Something is terrible. Remove the stain. And guess what? That's what brokenness does. It brings a kind of sanctified shame. And the only answer, the only answer, the only answer is the cleansing of the soul. By the way, there's a difference between guilt and shame. Do you know what it is? Guilt is when you know that you've done something wrong. Shame is when you know there's something wrong with you. It isn't simply I've done wrong. It's there's something fundamentally wrong. There's something fundamentally broken there's something fundamentally destroyed shame shatters shame makes you feel like you're broken into a million pieces and there's no power on earth that can put you back together guilt says i'm wrong shame says there's something wrong with me and this isn't psychological contamination this is david's way of saying i never want to find myself in this position Ever again, it's David's way of saying, I don't want the continual presence of the shame in my life. Do you realize that brokenness actually begins to build a barrier against sin? That's what brokenness does. Brokenness 
in the spiritual realm is like there's this overflowing river that begins to flood the property, but brokenness builds a levee and a berm and it begins to build up a wall of protection. You would think, you would think, you would think that something broken can't protect you. Well, it's broken. How can something broken keep something out that's trying to get in? Do you know what the answer is? A broken heart fills you with the kind of sanctified shame that places you in a position of not ever, ever wanting to embarrass God ever again. It isn't just that you're ashamed of yourself. It's the fact that you know that you've hurt the Lord, that you've wounded your friendship and your fellowship, and you sense the deep disappointment on the part of God. And you say, I don't want I I never I never I never want the Lord to have to go through this with me ever again. He moves from soul's shame to soul's pain. Look at verse 10. It says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Again, the New Living Translation. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. You know why that's important? Because brokenness not only brings a sense of sanctified shame, but it also brings new desires. Created me a clean heart. That's the desire. Brokenness brings the desire for a fresh start, a new heart, a steadfast spirit. It's the brokenness that brings you to a place where I want to start. I want to start over again with you, Lord. And in order for me to start over, you're going to have to be the one who's creating a clean heart. David is in effect saying, I want my heart and I want my spirit To be something that is completely different and I want it to be completely new. Have you ever prayed that prayer? I wish I could just start over. Instead of a dirty heart, I wish I could have a clean heart. Instead of a guilty heart, I wish I could have a cleansed heart and a forgiven heart. Instead of a defiled heart. Instead of a broken heart. Instead of an empty heart, I want a brand new heart. Life. And you might be thinking, that's a pretty bold request. How can he even ask that? Warren Wearsby writes. Suppose you turn on a faucet at home. And out comes dirty water. So you go to Home Depot. You buy a brand new faucet, a way more expensive one. You install it and you turn on the water again and out comes dirty water. Well, obviously, the problem isn't with the faucet. Changing the faucet isn't going to change the water. David is basically saying, don't change the faucet. Change whatever's necessary so that the dirty water will become clean water. Do you know what he's asking for? He's asking for a radical transformation. 
He's asking for a radical transformation and he's willing to pay whatever cost is necessary. And by the way, only brokenness can bring you to that kind of radical commitment to change. You probably had conversations. Someone has said to you or you've said to them, I want to change. No, you don't. No, I I do. No, you don't. No, I do. Prove it. Prove to me that you're really willing to change. Well, guess what? Real change proceeds out of real brokenness. And by the way, when you pray that kind of prayer. God will answer your prayer. If you really mean it. Create in me. A clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. He goes to soul certainty. Look at verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Again, in the New Living Translation, it says, do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, one of the interesting things about this particular passage before we continue, you should make a little note, because in the Bible, there's a there's a thing. It's a it's a principle. It's called the law of first mention. And right here is the first time in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I'm bringing it to your attention is because it's going to be important to you. The next time and the only other time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Old Testament in those specific terms, certainly the Spirit of God is mentioned, but the use of the term the Holy Spirit is only found in Isaiah 63, verses 10 and 11. And it's worth looking at. In Isaiah 63, 10 and 11, it says, but they rebelled against him, speaking of God, and they grieved his Holy Spirit. This is why he became their enemy and fought against them. Then they remembered those days of old when Moses led his people out of Egypt. They cried out, where is the one who brought Israel through the sea with Moses as their shepherd? Where is the one who sent his Holy Spirit to be among his people? Why is this important to you? Because two things, brokenness will bring a fresh appreciation of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. In what way? Cleansing. Because remember, this is a supernatural problem. No amount of therapy. No amount of psychological insight. There is no amount of therapeutic intervention. There is no pill that you can take. There's no electrical shock that you can receive to make the filthiness and the disappointment and the guilt and the wickedness go away in order for your sin to really, truly go away. God's going to have to do it. It's going to take An intervention by God's Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, it says, Do not quench the Holy Spirit. In 
Luke chapter 11, verse 13, it says, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? At this point, that's what you should be saying. Hey, that's what I want. Well, guess what? If you're a Christian. If you've repented of your sin and confessed your sin, if you're born again, the the moment that you invited Christ into your life, the moment that you decided to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior, the moment that you became born again, not only did the Holy Spirit come inside of you, but the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit came inside of you in power. You have everything that you need. You don't have anything that you don't need. Everything that you need in order to experience the power of God and the blessing of God and the forgiveness of God and the cleansing of God. It's available to you. Now, think about this. David's broken heart brought David to a place that no sin. And I want you to understand this. No sin, no sin was worth the loss of the Holy Spirit's work and influence in David's life. See, if you've ever walked in the power and the presence of God, if you've ever walked in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, if you've ever enjoyed the favor of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the supernatural working of God. There's nothing, there's nothing that's there's nothing better than that. So how can you function without the work and the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit? You can't. How can you live the Christian life? You can't if you're constantly grieving and quenching the work of the Holy Spirit. If you're quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit, then guess what? You're going to live a life of powerlessness. You're going to live a life of depression. You're going to live a life of detachment. You're going to live a life where you give yourself permission to do weird and wicked things. The Puritan preacher John Owen understood this in the 16th century. He wrote every method put to use to mortify sin, which is not of the Holy Spirit, is doomed to failure. Every system which attempts to deal with sin without Christ and without the Holy Spirit is legalistic and miserable. My point. You can't work yourself into this frenzy and go. I can do it. I can do it. I can. I can. I can do it. I can do it. I can. I can. No, you can't. Truth in your flesh are a miserable failure and you will fail over and over and over again. Remember what happened when you became a Christian. You agreed to allow Jesus into your life. You understood that it is the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the presence of Jesus That forgives sin, that washes and cleanses and purifies and empowers you. Do you still struggle with sin? Yes, we all struggle with sin. But guess what? The difference between a struggle with sin and the difference between sin having dominion over you. Is quite frankly, the presence or the absence of the Holy Spirit in power in your life. That's the point. Brokenness provides godly sorrow. 
a soul sorrow. Look at verse 12. Again, in the New King James Version, it says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Again, the New Living Translation says, Restore to me again the joy of your salvation. Make me willing to obey you. If you've ever wondered, can I legitimately pray that prayer? David did. In Psalm 51, verse 12, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Lord, make me willing to obey you. Brokenness brings a fresh appreciation of your salvation. That's what it does. Has it been a while since you've rejoiced in your salvation? That's what brokenness will do. Have you even, did you ever even give it a thought today? Did you wake up this morning? Did you proceed throughout the day? Did you begin to think, God has saved me. I've been saved. My sins have been forgiven. I'm going to heaven. I love to go to Chick-fil-A and get a half and half iced tea. And meditate on the reality that I'm saved. And even the people who work there who are Christians, they'll see my face light up and they'll go. What are you so happy about? How can you ask me that? I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. How can you not be filled with overwhelming joy? You thought it was the tea and the Chick-fil-A sandwich. You are wrong. It's the presence of Christ in my life. Let me ask you something. Do you literally rejoice in the fact that you're going to heaven and not hell? Do you Become completely blown away that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Or have you put your problem and your pain and, and your circumstances on a pedestal and began to worship the object of your pain and your sorrow and your distress? Hey, guess what? That's idolatry. That's idolatry. Well, how could I not be concerned about this? Hey, there's a big difference between being concerned and putting your problem on a pedestal and you begin to worship it and you begin to think about it. Because really, I've told you this on more than one occasion. The thing that you think about the most is the thing that you worship. And if that's your money, if that's your problem, if that's your sorrow, if that's your sin, then guess what? That's your God. Hey, we all experience crisis. We all have disappointments in our life. We all experience setbacks in ministry and in life. Sometimes we're sick. Sometimes we're burdened. Sometimes we're grieved. Have you worked hard on a project only to see it go up in smoke? Have you ever spent hours laboring only to see it turn into a pile of trash? Have you ever spent hours in front of the computer only to have the data just sort of disappear on you? Several years ago, I was working in my study and my wife was watering in the backyard and and the hose and the moisture landed on on the on on the windowsill. And somehow some of this water got onto the monitor screen and you could smell the smoke and you could see the sparks. And there it was. The monitor is gone. This is the time when you discover, am I really going to practice what I preach? 
You know what? You might be experiencing the worst circumstances of your life. There might be something really terribly challenging that you face. But you should be able to say, Lord, I'm going to walk in the joy of my salvation. I'm not going to hell. Some people might look at this passage and say, well, did David lose his salvation? No, David didn't lose his salvation. Look carefully. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Did he lose the joy of his salvation? The answer is yes. That's exactly what he lost. But I want you to understand something. The key to understanding this passage does not lie in a theological debate concerning assurance, but rather the key to understanding this particular passage is the context of the entire psalm. Brokenness brought the joy of salvation back in his life. That's the key. Lord, I'm empty. I'm hurt. I have nothing other than what you're going to be able to provide for me. And then the Lord says, guess what? You're in the perfect place where now I can bring you to a place where you can experience salvation, the joy of your salvation. Brokenness brought with it the joy of salvation, David's redemption. You know, it's not popular. It's not popular in our culture to point out that much that masquerades as depression comes from sin. We all want to believe that depression comes from some chemical imbalance or a familial dysfunction or an environmental tragedy. And perhaps at the heart of depression, there is a sinful component. Perhaps there's flagrant sin. Perhaps there's hidden sin. Perhaps there's something eating at the heart and eating at the conscience. Maybe it's something else. But David knows something. David knows that his own detachment comes because there is a real problem. He's destroyed people's lives. He's killed a man and ruined another person's life. And if that doesn't have a physical and an emotional consequence, then somehow you've missed the whole point of what it means to be human. By the way, the word translated joy, look at it again in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of salvation. It comes from two Hebrew root words. The first word in the Hebrew root word means bright. And it's the kind of bright that you see when you look into the sun. It's the kind of bright where your eye is filled with light. And the other part of the word means lily. In the Hebrew language or whiteness, if you will, it's the quality of being white. David wants joy that is bright and beautiful. And so for the person who says, you know, you're talking about this dream world, you you want everything to to be as if the sin never took place. Yeah, that's exactly what he's asking for. 
And see, that should shock you and it, it should, should surprise you. David wants to experience the kind of joy that removes the cause of his depression, that removes the cause of his guilt, that removes the cause of his shame and his sin. He's looking for cleansing. And at the end of the passage, look what it says. Uphold me by your Generous spirit. Darby writes, and let a willing spirit sustain me. The thought is closely connected in the Hebrew language with the idea of the free will offering. And so here's the question that you should ask yourself as you look at the end of verse 12. Uphold me by your generous spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to be upheld by God's generous spirit? For David, he doesn't want to fall into the sin again. Ever. Ever. Again. In other words, this is a brokenness that leads to a transformation, that leads to a reality that there is a full and a final dealing with what has happened. David not only does not want to sin, but look what else he, he wants. He doesn't, he doesn't even want to have to think about it. David cannot live the life God longs for in the strength of his own flesh or in the strength of his own resources. He understands fully. He understands completely. He understands unequivocally. If I'm going to experience that kind of cleansing, you're going to have to do it. That's what he's saying. God's going to have to do it. David can't live the life God longs for in the strength of his own resources. David knows that the specter of future failure looms large. In other words, because he knows that the future failure looms large in order for him to avoid failing in the future. He cries out to God. God to sustain his soul because it's only God. It's only from the platform of God that he is going to be able to make it. David is asking the Lord to deal with the defeat that has ruined his life. And you might be saying, well, it's easy for you to say. Haven't you read this psalm? Don't you understand what's gone on in his life? Don't you understand the consequences that this failure is going to produce in the life of his family, in the life of his kingdom, in the life of the future? But David is bold enough to ask this question and get this answer. He's asking the Lord to deal with the defeat that's ruined him and to provide the cleansing that he needs in his heart. And what's the answer? Oddly enough, it's the only answer. There is no psychological solution. There is no social solution. There is no biological solution. There is no chemical solution. In order for his sin to really, truly, completely, 
unequivocally go away. If he is going to go through the process of conviction and confession and cleansing and a little bit later on in the in the psalm consecration, the cleansing is going to have to come from God. But this is the good news for you. That's exactly how your cleansing comes from. That's how your sin gets dealt with. That's how the willful disobedience. That's how the sin that has corrupted on the outside and ruined on the inside. We simply don't have the resources to deal with our sin. We need David's son. And in time and in space. David and Bathsheba are going to have another child, Solomon. And Solomon is going to have a child and his child is going to have a child. And you can count them in the book of Matthew, 14 generations into the future. A young maiden from the Galilee is going to be found overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. She and her husband, Joseph, are going to march into Bethlehem and she's going to give birth to a baby David's son. And David's son is going to grow up. And the angel is going to tell his mother, call his name Jesus. And the reason why we're calling his name Jesus is because he's going to save the people from their sin. You mean God is willing and able to provide redemption and solution We need Jesus. David has presented sin's defilement in verse 7. Sin's deafness in verse 8. Sin's disgrace in verse 9. Sin's damage in verse 10. Sin's doom in verse 11. Sin's depression at the beginning of verse 12. And then sin's defeat. God, you're going to have to cleanse me. Because I have no resources for myself. The answer? Okay. That's exactly what I'm going to do. How is that possible? John Dickey wrote, We have sinned, fearfully sinned, and that we may be delivered from it and its consequences. Two things are needed. Two, not one. The two things are... Repentance and faith. We will never cease to be plagued with sin, but we will never again be brought under the dominion of sin. And if you're willing to repent of your sin, and if you are willing by faith to believe that Jesus will make pure what was defiled, And will give your heart the ability to hear where it once was death. Where you can experience God's grace. Instead of sin's disgrace. It really is that simple. I know you want it to be more complex. I know you wish you can't you just tell me to go slay a dragon or go to Afghanistan and hand out tracts. 
Hey, you know, go to Afghanistan and hand out tracts. Praise God if you do. But that's not going to make sin's guilt go away. That's not going to bring cleansing to your heart. What's going to bring cleansing to your heart is a willingness by repentance to turn from your sin and a willingness by faith to receive the absolution, the cleansing, the mercy, the grace that's found in the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus. You know what's sad to me? There are some people who will listen to this message and for reasons that I don't quite understand, they'll still want to hold on to their sin. They'll still want to walk in their depression. They'll still want to entertain and embrace their sin. I can only tell you this. Do yourself a favor. Don't do it. Repent. Turn from your sin. Accept the grace and the mercy, the forgiveness and the cleansing. And so we see it, don't we? Conviction. Confession. Cleansing. But there's one more thing that we have to talk about, but that's for another time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that David will consecrate himself to you. That he will make the choice to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to you. Lord, people for thousands of years have looked at this passage of scripture and they've looked at the horrid sin and they've looked at the incredible mercy and forgiveness and they've wondered, they've questioned, they've even asked whether or not such cleansing is available to them. And Lord, I pray that you would remind them that David's son does exactly that. That if we confess our sin, that is, if we agree with you concerning our our sin, that you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That none of us needs to leave with a dirty heart or a defiled heart. None of us need to experience sin's deafness or sin's disgrace or sin's damage or live in its doom. But that, Lord, we can walk in newness of life, in grace and in mercy. Lord, I pray for that person now who's experiencing a boatload of guilt. Lord, I pray that they would lay their burden down. Lord, I pray that they would confess their sin. Lord, I pray that they would admit their guilt. Lord, I pray that they would receive your grace and mercy. Lord, I pray that they would allow brokenness to do the work that it was always intended to do. To bring about mercy. That a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. That you're near to the broken. And so, Heavenly Father, for that broken, broken person, for that person whose heart is so deeply, deeply broken, Lord, I pray that you would fill their heart with the knowledge of your love. With the knowledge that you're willing to forgive them. With the knowledge that you're willing to cleanse them. With the knowledge that you're willing to provide for them the Holy Spirit so that they can walk in strength and power and newness of life. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's stand.